0: I realized since I've been back from what well, since the beginning of the year that I've preached pretty much exclusively from the New Testament so decided that this morning we would focus on an Old Testament passage one with which uh, I think most of us here are familiar in fact this passage is one of the mo- those passages where the Bible displays its ageless timeless quality indeed the events of the story of the story we're getting ready to read are as current as this morning's newspaper as this evening's newscast that's because it's the, about the abuse of position within the echelons of power before reading it let's remind ourselves briefly of the rise of david to prominence as this morning's scripture represents a, a turning point in the davidic narrative up to this point Events surrounding the rise of David to influence and power have been colored with an aura of innocence and purity. David, the handsome shepherd boy, the youngest of eight brothers, anointed at a young age by the prophet Samuel as the future king, a musician calming the tormented King Saul by the playing of the lyre, a warrior the vanquisher of the giant Goliath, forming an army, David ultimately defeats King Saul, who dies by falling on his sword, and David becomes the king of a united, uni- unified kingdom. And throughout that long narrative there in Second Samuel of David's rise, there has been no suggestion of moral malfeasance, no hint of inappropriate or immoral behavior up to this point. However, in our passage this morning, the innocence of David and of Israel is never to be retrieved. From the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, we find these verses, these words. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, Joab was the commander of his army. David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab and the people, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's uh, that's a euphemism. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, You you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house?" Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand, by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jeroboam? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The story of King David and the wife of Uriah the Hittite is an extremely, extremely subtle and moving narrative, challenging our capacity to interpret. It's like standing before a great work of art, a a painting by Rembrandt, or a work of sculpture by michelangelo and holding in our hands a written description of what we are seeing though the description is helpful the interpretation inevitably falls short of the complexity of the art itself for that work of art speaks to that part of us wherein words are inadequate so with this story the plot in itself is simple enough in fact this Plot is painfully repeated throughout the course of human history, yet no amount of interpretation can fully capture the depth of pathos present. As Walter Brueggemann observes, this narrative is more than we want to know about David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. The scene we have here is of a king near the pinnacle of his power and influence. No longer does David ride out into battle, as he did when trying to secure the throne. Rather, David stays in Jerusalem. David has armies to fight his battles now. David's success has granted him the luxury of leisure, the time to lounge about if he so desires, while his subjects carry on the business of running the kingdom like risking their lives on the battlefield. And it is while his armies are at war that David rises from his afternoon siesta and spies a beautiful woman bathing on a nearby rooftop. Back in 1 Samuel, when the people of Israel decided they wanted a king, we want to be like other nations, they cry to the prophet Samuel. And Samuel warns them, These will be the ways of the king, Samuel says. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. He will take, he will take, he will take. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he lay with her, she returned to her house. According to the narrative, David never speaks to her, never calls her by name. There is no gentleness, no intimacy, no love, only lust and the power to fulfill it. So David sent messengers and took her. Regardless of the fact that she is another man's wife, David takes her. After all, David is king. David is powerful. David gets what David wants. David is in control. So David the king sent messengers and took her. Because David gets what David wants. Until, until he hears those words, two simple Hebrew words, words which in another context bring so much joy, so much excitement, so much anticipation. Those two simple Hebrew words, hara anoki. I am pregnant. With the the utterance of this tiny yet huge sentence, David's world turns upside down. David had been in control. Now, as long as these words stand, his control is jeopardized. Perhaps his power as king is not threatened, but his authority and legitimacy as the keeper of the law of Moses, as God's anointed one, the Messiah, as one whose rise to power and influence lay in God's choosing him and blessing him is certainly threatened. We have seen In our own lifetimes, how moral malfeasance has brought the world tumbling down around many political, religious figures. If the people of Israel find out about this, how can he continue as a symbol of integrity and blessing? So David acts. David's course of action really, in a sense, comes as no surprise to us. We who are familiar with high-level cover-up attempts, both in the realm of royalty and of government. David does what comes naturally to many whose misdeeds catch them. He attempts to cover up. Swiftly, with no hesitation, David acts. First, The king tries to resolve his dilemma by bringing Uriah back from battle and suggesting he sleep with his wife. Uriah, however, is a man of principle. The ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. In other words, his colleagues are risking their lives in war. Shall I then go down to my house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife as my wife? As you live, I will not do such a thing. So David's first attempt at cover-up fails. So he tries another tactic. In a a crass and cynical move, David makes Uriah drunk, hoping that with the alcohol impairing his judgment, lowering his inhibitions, he will go home to his wife. This ploy fails as well. David, David is unable to manipulate events to his own advantage, even when Uriah is drunk. Well, becoming desperate, the king formulates an even more heinous scheme resorting to violence. David arranges for Uriah to be at the forefront of battle, where Uriah is killed. Even though the battle strategy strategy is stupid, it is excused because Uriah is killed. That is why Joab says to the messenger, if David begins to question our strategy tell him that Uriah is dead. He knows that that's what David wants to hear. And since that is what David does hear, all else is excused. The third attempt at cover-up is successful. Position secured, tragedy and embarrassment avoided. And yet, in the process, David has become morally numb. Swept along by this irresistible urge to cover his moral turpitude. David, the keeper of the law of Moses, who brought the ark back to Jerusalem after a 20 year absence, has taken another man's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. David has taken that what, what was not his. Thou shalt not covet. David has engineered a murder. Thou shalt not kill. And then David has the audacity to say to Joab, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. That's the way of war. The loss of innocence is complete. The king in his lofty position of power and influence has come to regard himself as morally autonomous. David thinks he can do as he damn well pleases. David, a David, a powerful man in a powerful position, has been seduced. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. We read at the end of this chapter. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know, sometimes I wish politicians, many of them who claim to be Christian, would be as concerned about displeasing the Lord as they are about displeasing their constituents. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. My friends, Yahweh... God has another moral vision, a vision of which David is reminded through the prophet Nathan. And if you go on and read the next chapter, you will read about God sending the prophet Nathan. And through a a parable that Nathan tells the king, David comes to see himself as a sinner and to his credit is moved To confession it's like looking in a mirror and seeing that hey i am the man of which you speak he is able to utter those words which are so often so slow and difficult to come i have sinned against the lord indeed as don mentioned the psalm on which our prayer of confession was based was written by david following his affair with bathsheba and with his confession His restoration is possible, though things will never be the same. The repercussions of his sin with Bathsheba ripple throughout his family's history. You know, this story speaks to us, each of us at some level. There is within each of us that tendency toward selfishness, toward self gratification without regard to consequence, the the tendency to, to manipulate events, the propensity to rationalize our behavior in such a way as to relieve ourselves of moral obligation. And most dangerously, to come to regard ourselves as morally autonomous, thinking we are free to live and act as we damn well please. Yet, God has another moral vision A vision made manifest as we, who are Christians, discover in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, this vision includes concepts as faithfulness and responsibility and compassion and justice and confession and forgiveness and humility and integrity and mercy. It is God's vision that we are called to search out. It is to God's vision that we are to hold ourselves accountable. It is to God's vision that we are to remain faithful. We end this morning, as the story ends, with a word of grace. God has another moral vision, yes, and within that vision there is judgment. Behold, I will rise up evil out of your own house. We read in Scripture. We can see that judgment played out in the lives of David's family. But the last word is one of grace. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die, he says to David. In light of his confession. There is judgment, yes but the last word is one of grace. Friends, the scope of sin is frightening. What we can do when we consider ourselves morally autonomous brings judgment upon ourselves. And yet there is grace. We cannot cannot forget that it is from the lineage of David and Bathsheba that Jesus is born. Even in the deepest gloom of the human condition, there is cause for celebration and joy, for there is that word of grace. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. What good news for you and for me. Let us pray. We thank you for these wondrous stories that are provided for us in Scripture. Stories which speak to us at so many levels. Grant that we might clasp, cling to that moral vision that You have provided for us through Jesus Christ. And may we be faithful, confessing disciples of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.